I mean, we need sustained $30 plus, and then you might see some primary silver stuff start to come online. But the primary silver producers will become gold companies. Well, hello there, my friends. Chris Marcus here with you for Arcadia Economics as we continue digging on into the silver world. Fortunately, I'm joined today by my dear friend Steve Cope of Silver Viper Minerals, who is on the supply side of the equation and also uh, has quite a bit to say about some of the dynamics going on in the macro as well, which all combining, unfortunately, as we're recording on Tuesday, August 8th, we see silver price down again a bit today, although we will dig into some of the factors that we will be keeping an eye on going forward. So with all that said, Steve, great to have you back on in here today and uh, good to catch up with you as always. How's everything going with you? It's going good. You know, I mean, we, we, we see what's happening in the world, but we continue to to plug along and do what we do and looking for more gold and silver. But I'm actually getting excited. I really, I, I think, you know, you see what's going on on a macro scale and I think we're getting close. I know we've talked a lot and we've, you know, we've talked about why gold and silver should go up, but I, I really think we're getting close to the end of, of what the Fed can do and, and what people can tolerate with what the Fed is doing, what the government is doing. And, and I just, I think things are building and we're very close to this stuff breaking up finally. Well, there was some confirmation of that earlier this morning as well. And first, I will pull up our silver chart. Again, we're recording on Tuesday. This will be airing on Wednesday. But been a tough two days to start the week. Silver down almost a dollar over the last two days. Futures at 2280. Although, as you mentioned, getting closer towards the end of rate hikes. We've heard that quite a bit throughout the past year, although... Earlier Tuesday, Philadelphia Fed President Patrick Harker said, I believe we may be at the point where we can be patient, hold rates steady, and let the monetary policy actions do their work. Again, as of a couple months ago, they were looking at two more Fed hikes. We got one of them in July, but sounds like the Fed, uh, maybe they were listening to your last episode where you're saying, I think, I think we've got enough, but uh perhaps you could touch a little more on what you mentioned briefly there whether you think we're getting to the end there as perhaps uh patrick harker suggests here well i i definitely think we're getting to the end i mean we should have been at the end at the beginning of the year and we saw what gold and silver did when the market expected that the u.s was done raising rates at the beginning of the year you know these the prices spiked so again i mean people have had to put the, they put their foot on the brakes and panicked a bit and said oh okay here you come you know a few more rate hikes but gold you can see i mean there you see it on that chart we were spiking up it was looking great people were very much expecting that the the rate hikes were over and then you know for a variety of reasons you know whether it was they didn't like housing prices running and that wasn't you know increasing inflation and these inflation numbers that they come up with you know were rising too much again and not in control and so they decided to do a few more of these you know very small quarter point hikes but you start looking at other reports out there and, you know, U.S. consumer debt on their credit cards is the highest it's ever been. The jobs number surprised and were poorer than expected. You know, people are feeling the crunch of, you know, the implications of what's going on right now. And they won't tolerate that and they can't tolerate that. And you can only put so much stress on your people. 
you know, before you start, you know, you keep raising rates, you're going to have people, you know, defaulting on their mortgages. And that's going to just ramp up as we get further and further into the cycle as, as mortgages come up and people have to refinance or do different things and they can't afford their payments, the housing, you know, the price of their home is coming down at the same time. It's, it's not a good situation. All right. They're not, and not just in the U S in Canada and Europe and, you know, across the world, for the most part, people are hurting and they can't afford, you know, the cost of living of what, you know, things are at right now. And they can't afford to, you know, their workplaces can't afford to pay them more, but the costs are going up. It's just people are hurting all over and the fed and the U S government, especially coming into an election cycle, you know, they don't want to, the Democrats don't want to keep looking or like, look at look what you're doing to my living. They're going to have to, you know, take the foot off the, the gas pedal here and, and give people a little bit of a reprieve. Or, you know, I think the Republicans are going to win this next election in a landslide if they continue to go like this. So I just think it's it's we're long overdue for the pause. We know what should happen because we saw it earlier this year when they do finally announce that they're pausing rate hikes. And and so I'm excited. I really think we're coming into a much better period for gold and silver. Yeah, and as we take a look back at the chart here, again, another factor that was driving the second rally, we actually had a few rallies in the past year, a few sell-offs as well, but in addition to the anticipation of a Fed pause, we did have the banking issues, and also on Tuesday, story that came out, Moody's downgraded 10 banks, was warning of possible cuts to others. <clears throat> so it's interesting, the same day that the Fed governor was talking about pausing to let the impact of the rate hikes sink in, suggesting that, as we've talked about quite a bit before, that there's a lag and it takes time for that impact to be felt. Now we're seeing additional concerns in the banking sector, which really had people freaked out quite a bit and going into the metals earlier this year. And as you mentioned, um, one of the things that people are concerned about, not just the economy, but in the banking sector in particular. And I would imagine that if we have some more bank failures, that probably would lead to something similar to what we saw a couple months ago. Well, and so the U.S. has promised to bail banks out. But now you're talking about trillions of dollars of, of you know, again, essentially printing, pumping in new, you know, to bail these guys out. And again, like why that that leads to gold and silver should be going up. I mean, there's your safe haven, there's your insurance against all the other stuff that's going on. And you, you but you see these news articles and then we're sitting in, you know, this comes out and then we're sitting in a day like today where gold and silver are off in the in the short term. But again, it can't it, it can't be sustained. I mean, one of the other things I think we'll get into it further, but again, you start talking about the cost of production for silver and what these what these companies need to survive. And there's a reason there's not very many primary silver producers anymore because tw 10 years ago, you needed $20 silver just to break even if you were lucky. You know, a company like First Majestic was even higher. They were one of the highest costs and they were like $25 plus then that they needed to break even on their primary silver. Now you go through 10 years of inflation, you know, again, we've, and we've talked about it repeatedly, but silver needs $30 plus. I mean, we need sustained $30 plus, and then you might see some primary silver stuff start to come online, but the primary silver producers have become gold companies or they've become base metals 
first companies on a lot of projects to get some silver production because you don't make money in primary silver. You need a byproduct right now because you can make money in gold. You can make money in zinc and copper with the right project, but primary silver, my, like it's, it's dumbfounding. You've got this shortage in the world of silver production, you know, going down on a year by year basis, the, the supply, you know, and the surplus that exists disappearing. And yet we've got this green, you know, green movement that's demanding exponentially more silver year over year than has ever been needed in the past. And we're still sitting here down at a price that didn't make silver companies, you know, money 10 years ago. So it has to change. It has to change or you're going to just see silver disappear. You know, it's because people won't mine it. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, when that's going to break and I know, you know, most of the people that watch the show obviously are silver bugs and, and following and, and they fully are aware of that. And that's why they've been, you know, pouring their money into silver because we all know it has to change or, or you're just not going to have people mining silver. Yeah. And that's one of the things I was curious, obviously you're on the front lines of this and I mean, you're not, your silver Viper is not a producer. You're on the exploration side, but how much lower can the price go or how much longer staying at this level before we start to really see that impact some of the production? Obviously, things in Mexico are not helping where Newmont's Penasquito mine still offline. So we have some some of the companies struggling with labor issues, but more in terms of just the uh, the pricing. Do we are we close to the point where we start seeing companies putting projects offline or or how what what does it take before that happens? I mean, if you I wouldn't want to have a primary silver mine right now in this this environment. I mean, most I mean, if you're talking about Mexico, most of them have a byproduct. You know, whether even if silver is the primary metal, the guys can get by on on gold or or some of the other you know, byproducts, hopefully. But if you had a primary silver mine and you're, you're priced in right now, you're, I don't know how you're making money, but it's expensive to, you know, it is expensive to shut down and put a mine, you know, halt production and, and then to ramp it back up. And that is a whole process in itself that you have to factor in. So I, again, I mean, I don't think this is going to sustain down here for very long. Um, I do think we're we're going to have a correction as soon as the the feds officially announce that they're pausing rate hikes for any sort of sustained period. I think you're going to see a very quick rebound in metals prices, but, but you're not, you're not seeing, like I said, the producers that used to be primary producers like Pan American silver are now 80% gold production. You know, they're, they're starting to look elsewhere. Even first majestics, you know, been ramping up their gold levels. It's, there's not a lot the, the primary silver producers are now, you know, they're mid-tier companies. They've, they don't have the market cap. They don't have the size. They don't have the production to, and they haven't been replacing the production that they've, you know, year over year. So I think what you need, you need silver prices to go up. And then, you know, some of those expiration assets become that are primary silver become more attractive. Um, but it's tough. And, and again, people always, you know, I get, I get investors all the time that look and say, Oh, my, my, this company says their cash costs are, you know, $10 an ounce or $15 an ounce or this, you know, even producers, Oh, they're they're at 20, they're doing okay. And I say, okay, that's fine. They're all in sustaining costs even as, you know, as 20. So you're, you're making money. Well, how come their cash position is going down quarter over quarter? 
you know, it's the average investor, you know, it used to be worse. It used to be the, the just the cash cost number was the most manipulated number in the industry. It was horrible. Yeah. All in sustaining brought in more stuff, but it's still not the total picture. You know, what's included in drilling costs to replace reserves? Is that included in the company's all in sustaining cost? Salaries, GNA, you know, acquisition costs of new things. Like there's there's so much more that goes into running those companies that isn't included in an all-in sustain, even in the all-in sustaining cost that, you know, you laugh, you say, oh, they, they say, look at their profit. Well, yeah, on the mine maybe, but, but what about everything else that there is no profit in a company that's just a drain that isn't included in that? And oftentimes you just look at the cash position of the company and it's going down quarter over quarter over quarter. And all of a sudden they do a financing or they, you know, they do something different. You're saying, well, if you were making money, why do you have to do financings? If you're not doing any big acquisitions, or doing anything else that isn't just the run of your regular business practices. It's, it's tough. It's, it's this inflationary environment on the mining industry. And you talk about Penasquito and, you know, again, here's workers that want more of a late, they need more money to cover the cost of their living. And so they're out striking and shutting down production. And the mining company I'm sure is saying like, our margins are pretty thin already. And even that one, which is, you know, obviously silver is a massive byproduct, but that's the inflationary market where people need more money to live their lives based on the, you know, the cost that, you know, even in Mexico, the costs are still rising. So people want to make more money to support their families and, and for the, what's going in and they can see that the mining company is making money. And so they want a piece of that. And, and that's kind of what always happens. And I go back to when my dad was in the industry and we were at $200 gold and $300 was going to be, you know, I remember telling stories like this is going to be the game changer. And now I'll hear him talk all the time and he'll say, my God, we're at 1900 gold and people still value an ounce of gold at the same amount in the ground, like $50 an ounce in the ground. It doesn't make sense. Like it's, um, so it's, it's, it's interesting, but that's what's gone on. And so we need these prices to go across all of these different commodities to keep going up and, and, to finally let these big companies start, you know, printing cash again, and then they'll get active and they'll start buying the juniors and the mid tiers and, and do everything that we need to have in a healthy cycle in this industry happen. Yeah. And that's another thing that I wanted to touch on. You mentioned the juniors and I'm going to pull up the chart of the SILJ. Interesting in that depending on which day you market to, but here we are back in September when silver was down at 18 bucks see 947 on September 5th, two cents higher than it's trading today. And that's with silver four and a half, five dollars lower. Are you surprised that the, obviously while we were seeing silver get getting pounded throughout last summer, which was a bit of religious experience, um, made sense then. Although, are you surprised just how a lot of the juniors, some trading substantially lower than a year ago, that the money just hasn't come back? Do you think it's still a matter of people feeling the pain over the last year? Or A, are you surprised by where we are a year later? And B, what do you think eventually changes that? I mean, I, I'm, cer I'm, I'm certainly surprised at where the junior share prices are at, given you, know, you say metals rebounded. But I think, think what you're looking at there and what you've seen across the last year is it's more of a the macro thing. Ignore gold and silver prices and people it's been people hurting. You know, it's what we talked about earlier. People they're what they can afford 
to live off of, you know, with interest rates going up, all of those, you know, big funds that could borrow at 1% and, and kill it and make money and pour it into, you know, investments at five or 6%, it hurts. And they've had to pour out and sell a lot of their, and that trickle down effect has affected all the equities all the way down to the juniors. And that's not just in gold and silver. I mean, that's across the board. You know, you're seeing people, you know, exit any paper assets were being sold off over this last year because people aren't comfortable. So even when gold and silver rebound, the equities have continued to be heard or haven't seen those big rebounds that you would expect on gold and silver going up. Now, now as people get more comfortable and we settle in, if you look at, you know, the past cycles when gold and silver were up, the gold and silver equities are the first ones to rebound um, over other industries. And, you know, there tend to be periods of time where people make the most money they'll ever make in these sectors. Um, but but we need to get to that point. And as we've talked about, like people are hurting. There's not a lot of free capital out there to invest and pour into, you know, junior stocks or, or any stocks because people need to buy food. And they're like you said, their credit card debts are spiking the jobs they want. They don't have for a lot of people they're losing and, you know, they're having to take lesser paying jobs or multiple jobs. And, and even in spite of that, the jobs numbers are coming down. So I, it's it's a tough economic world out there and it's a period of hurt for people. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised that people aren't pouring their money back into equities. Smart money is going back into them and they're you know taking this opportunity to buy stuff while it's cheap. But, but until people get a semblance of what's going on in the world and get comfortable that, you know, the worst is over and then you get the confidence into the bigger, you know, players, but, but the funds in the silver and gold space have had virtually no inflows and it's been steady outflows. So again, the people that understand our sector that need those inflows to deploy into new names or up their positions in existing companies that they're invested in, they haven't been getting that inflow. So it's really the big generalist funds when they start pouring their capital into the, you know, the, the mining funds that then you'll start to see, you know, big volume and and rebounding happening in the equity price because the retail guys well they're they're very important and can move share prices they've only got so much buying power and and most of them you know that buying power has been depleted again because they need to spend that on other things in their lives yeah and in the midst of all of that happening going to pull up some of the supply and demand which obviously we've talked plenty about the 237 million ounce deficit last year, silver survey from the Silver Institute, forecasting a deficit again this year, although curious how these are going to shake out because here's the investment demand came in at 332.9. They were forecasting a drop to 309 in 2023. Did talk with a bullion dealer yesterday who said now that the first half is complete, they're on pace to be ahead of last year. Yeah. <laughs> Again, a lot of that was driven by the spike in March and April. It's been a little slow outside of those two months. Although, again, if we have more banking issues, do we have another spike? But not. there's the possibility that we don't see the drop-off there. Again, uh, Penasquito being down. Just leaves you wondering uh, where the silver is going to come from and then back to what you mentioned about the Fed. Now we see 86% chance of a pause in September. And 
I wonder if we'll get just uh, a bit of a turnaround whenever it is that the Fed finally says, all right, we're done hiking for now, as you and I talked about a little bit before we hit the record button. Seems like even when Powell has been tentative about suggesting as much, saying we're going to watch the data and still fight inflation, the markets have been looking for any sign that they might hold off in rallying. Do you think that's what it takes to just finally get that pause from the Fed? It need to be either a combination of that or banking issues, um, that it's going to be one of those two that drives the turnaround? I, I mean, it's a combination of both. I think you still have the banking issues. They've raised rates since, you know, we saw what happened earlier in the year when banks were failing. I, I think, again, there's there's more pressure on a lot of those investments in those banks, you know, with mortgages and everything else that's come from rate hikes. And, you know, especially in Canada, where I am, I mean, again, where, where our, our mortgage rates at most are locked in, you know, if you're fixed for five years, and even though if you've got a 30 year mortgage, you've got a, you know, you're renewing it and it's, it's not locked in long as long as you can in the U S. So, and if you're on variable, then, I mean, obviously that really hurt our, our housing sector because the, you know, the mortgages were going through the roof and hitting their trigger points and people were all of a sudden their payments were doubling, you know, on them in less than a year, which threw a lot of people for a loop and, and triggered our housing prices to come down. But then as soon as our, you know, the Canadian government looked like we were going to be pausing, housing markets spiked right back up because people are, okay, we're comfortable again. And then we've done a couple of rate hikes since, again, it looked like it was going to pause here earlier this year and it slowed things down again while people are waiting, you know, to get comfortable. But it's hurting, you know, and it's, you know, our in our case, they did it because, again, our inflation, 30% of it is calculated off of housing. And so when that housing number was running, well, their inflation number, you know, as soon as it started rebounding, they said, oh, that's not good. We want, we got to raise rates again because that 30, the one thing that their rate hikes could control was housing and, and they didn't like that it started to go back up as soon as they contemplated pausing. So, I mean, again, I think Canada's at, you know, from listening to, you know, what's been said, you know, by our banks and, and talking about raising rates, it sounds like we're getting pretty close to being done and they are just saying they can't they can't afford to raise more um so we'll see i mean we've tried to kind of always follow it along or try to front end run what the u.s has been doing but i i just i think we're right at the end now they're just there's not a lot of room for any more rate hikes the canadian banks are under a lot of pressure similar to the u.s banks you know on their share prices and that because one we're heavily are look like our some of our banks are heavily invested into the u.s real estate market as well so again that that I think is scaring them with what's going on in the U.S. And, and people have been bailing out of their bank investments over a lot of that. But it's it's not good. They can't raise rates more. So let's or they can they can, but that the pressure that it's going to cause on other areas is gonna it's gonna be wild to watch. And like you say, a lot of these rate hikes, you know, you have to let time settle in to really see how things work this rapid fire rate hike environment that we've gone through the last two years i mean it takes years oftentimes to see the results of of those policy changes and what's happening so like let's pause for a bit and get some sort of comfort level on what's going on in the world and what this means for the banks and for people and for the economy and jobs and everything else that this can affect you know over time and you know, I, I just, you know, we've always talked about, okay, we're in a recession, but it's been a weird recession because there's been lots of jobs, but 
but the jobs numbers are now coming off and you're seeing, you know, you keep hearing there's lots of jobs, but then you look at, you know, Silicon Valley and these big companies and the amount of people that are constantly being laid off. And it's great because the jobs number, you know, one person can count for three people on the U S jobs number because every job you have counts, you know, in their calculations, which is wild, but you know, great. I lost my, you know, six figure or seven figure job to get three jobs that, barely get you know scratch you out a living to support your family so it's the quality of the job and what people are repaying that doesn't get factored into that and yet in spite of all of it we still had a jobs number that came off so it's it's not working yeah i guess you could add into that we get these job numbers that for a string of months have beaten expectations although I believe it's the first six labor reports this year all were eventually down, uh, revised lower after the number comes out, which again, doesn't often seem to take the emphasis as whatever is the headline number the day it comes out, but such is how it is. And at least why we try to shed a little light on some of these things as they develop. So people can get a good idea of what's going on. And certainly you touched on the housing market where here in the U S we have mortgage rates over 7%, which is certainly making it tough for a lot of people out there. And I think you're right that we'll be feeling the impact of that in the months and years ahead. Although again, I wonder if the Fed is still planning their interest rate cuts next year, which will be cutting before the the impact of the hikes are felt. Uh, But in either case, Steve, uh, appreciate everything you shared there. And perhaps uh, you could also give us an update on how things are coming along at Silver Viper before we wrap up. I know that you're still looking at an updated resource estimate, which you've talked about before, it might include higher grades as well. So if you could give us an update on that and anything else that's uh, coming along at Silver Viper. Yeah, I mean, we've we've had to monitor what's going on in Mexico and, and the environment, but we're still continuing to work away, gearing up for our, our drilling program for the year. We've got all of, you know, we've received all of our five-year drilling permits are in place now on the project. So we're ready to go on that front. Uh, we're just kind of looking at the market and trying to figure out the best timing of you know when we're going to get the best bang for our buck on results. But it's coming, and we're excited because we want to test El Ruby at depth and test that investment model of the potential for Bonanza grades down at a deeper contact, which was the you know Quentin Henning Crest Cap model for the project. We've got a you know dozen plus new targets that have been identified from our field mapping and sampling that have the potential for new discoveries. And again, you know. Relating back to our talk today, one of the nice things about the La Virginia project is it's about 60% gold, 40% silver. So it should be very appealing and is very appealing to a lot of the mining companies, you know, at looking at, you know, taking La Virginia to production that, that they're not exposed on those, you know, kind of cash cost restraints that a primary silver producer is going to be limited by. And you can see you've got the resource estimate up here. And one of the things that I always say when you're looking at our resource, you've got to compare apples to apples. And so that open pit resource was done around an open pit heap leach operation. And the average open pit heap leach mine for gold in the state of Sonora in Mexico operates at about a half gram gold average grade and has very little silver component. Now you look at ours and you know we're 0.9 in the inferred El Ruby, point, almost 0.8 in the indicated. And then you've got the 35 grams of silver, 36 grams silver, on top of that, and you know, our, our preliminary metallurgy showed that that silver actually leaches at a pretty good level too. You know, getting you know the low grade silver leaching at you know 
76 up to 80 percent so on top of that gold grade that's already higher than the average most of the open pit heat bleach operations of the state you're going to get another almost half gram or almost exactly a half gram gold of silver on top of that and so now you're talking about double triple the grade of existing operations so for us it's just an, it's about growing and adding more and more ounces you know on an equivalent basis right now we're around that seven hundred thousand gold equivalent base or 50 seven hundred thousand ounces or 50 million silver equivalent so you know we'd like to get that at least over a million we see the potential for multiple million ounces of gold equivalent on the project you know, we've got El Ruby, we can expand on that, but El Molino, Peridonis, El Oriental, Macho Libre, these are all areas where I'm expecting to find another El Ruby or have the potential to find another El Ruby. And it doesn't take a lot to really start to grow the ounces quick. And then El Ruby itself, we see if you're following, you can kind of see that flat plateau that it sits on the southern end of. And our sampling shows mineralization all the way off that plateau running in this north-south trend. So again, El Ruby can expand itself. You know, you get to the northern end and we see gold, silver, and actually the copper starting to pick up as well. Um, if you go further north off of this image, you get up to La Gloria, which is a big porphyry target, which we're not going to be testing. But again, is potential that sits on the project for another big mineral deposit. So again, it's a, it's a very active project. There's lots of mineralization. It's just vectoring in on those highest grades and widths. And, and we're going to find a lot more on this project and then ultimately get bought out by one of these mining companies. Yeah, well, I know you've mentioned before that when you when uh, mine finders in Pan American they were drilled 180 holes. Although you guys were excited about the exploration potential outside of that, so I know that you do have a lot of targets there. And also, one other thing that uh, came through recently, you got the permits renewed at El Molino and El Ruby. Curious how that went. Any hurdles with getting that done? Obviously, with things changing a little bit in the Mexican environment. Uh, anything you could touch on there? No, I mean, our, our, our process with Semernat went very smoothly. You know, you're just following the letter of the law and the amount of time it takes for them to process it. And, and but no, we were permitted, not just at Peridonis El Ruby, we're permitted. We, we had drill pads in that plan all over the entire project. So again, we're set for five years, anywhere we want to drill on this project, we have the permitting in place. Um, you know, our guys are continuing to vector in and explore a lot of these different targets and, and really try and get them to be drill ready. And so we can make sure we're drilling what we think is the best spot on those targets. But no, I mean, that, that for everything that you hear publicly with what was going on in Mexico, we, we had no problems. Again, there's nothing environmentally sensitive where we are and, and issues. But again, it went very smoothly with Semernat. We got all our permits. Um which is, which is great for five years, which is as long as you can, you can get a drilling permit. And, and so, yeah, no, I mean, that was, that, that part's exciting. Obviously we've been aware of what, you know, AMLO has been saying, you know, publicly, but you know, a lot of that. And, and I think what you're seeing in Mexico now is you're just going to see, especially the big companies leading the way here, and there's going to be lawsuits for years going on, challenging some of these new rules. I mean, the, the Supreme court in Mexico still hasn't even, ruled on the legality of some of the stuff that was put forward but you know we'll let the bigger companies fight that fight while we continue to you know go and do our exploration and do what we're doing um and monitor but again it's i you know even with the rule changes this project in mexico in general is still 
you want silver, you better be here because it's still more attractive than Peru and Chile and some of the other top silver producing areas of the world. And, you know, if you want silver, it's going to have to come from Mexico. And it's still the number, you know, you've got, okay, we can get some from the US, we can get some from Canada, but the projects and the pipelines there are very small and, and come with their own massive, you know, most, in most cases, you know, environmental permitting issues and everything else that's going to go on. So, or issues with natives, you know, or it's, it's, there's, there's always something somewhere that can flare up and cause problems or make things take longer than they should. And we still like Mexico in spite of, you know, what the federal government, what they've been saying there, it's still a great place to work and operate. And one of the things we've always fallen back on is in Mexico, oftentimes it's the state governments that are the bigger decision makers on what's happening state by state, as far as exploration and the Sonoran government is extremely supportive. It's the number one industry in the state. They've always been great and good partners to work with. So again, I mean, we're, we're very happy with our location in Mexico and we're very picky about where we work. So there are only a few states in Mexico that we like to operate in and Sonora is right at the top of the list. Well, good to be in a safe, safer part of the jurisdiction there. And I'm sure they'll keep you busy over the next couple of years, but I know, uh, interacting with the community in a positive fashion another thing that you guys put a lot of effort into so i think uh you guys are positioned to be in good shape and steve perhaps in wrapping up can you just give folks the web address and how to contact you if anyone has questions would like to get some more information yeah absolutely www.silverviperminerals.com all of our contact details are in there but you can reach out by phone it's good you know there's our directory will take us to you can get a hold of me get a hold of alicia um, email on there, info at Silver Viper Minerals comes to Alicia and myself as well. Uh, we're always more than happy to engage with everyone. So please, yeah, don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions or want to, you know, arrange a call. We're more than happy to. We can jump on Zoom or Teams and or just do a regular phone call. It's up to you, whatever you're comfortable with. But yeah, we're more than happy to chat. Well, appreciate that, Steve. And thanks as always for checking in this month. Uh, we'll be interesting to see what the next couple of weeks hold. Hopefully. <laughs> get through Jackson Hole smoothly and uh, I guess a lot of eyes will be focused on that September Fed meeting but we'll be sitting here watching and look forward to catching up with you again next month. Sounds good Chris.